So Money Episode 740, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host, real estate expert, Elise Glink. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. We have a very special themed episode today of Ask Farnoosh. It's all going to be about real estate. Lots of you are in the market or interested in buying someday, sooner maybe than later or later than sooner. Whatever the case is, we've got you covered today on the show. And I couldn't think of a better, more more experienced. There's no other expert than Elise Glink when it comes to real estate. And she has been a friend of So Money in the past. She's been on the show, I think, twice. And excited to bring her back on as her book, which I've given away to some of you lucky listeners in past giveaways. Her book, which she actually launched, gosh, I don't, I'll let her answer this question, but I want I don't, I don't want to date it too far back, but I think it's about 10 years old, maybe older. It's called 100 Questions Every First Time Home Buyer Should Ask. It's a classic. It's now in its fourth edition, and it's already back for its second printing. She was telling me there's about 400,000 copies in circulation. So if you don't have one yet and you're thinking about buying a home, this needs to be your first purchase. So without further ado, Elise Glink, welcome back to So Money, my friend. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Farnoosh. Thank you for having me. And it is great to be back here. It's great to see your success with this podcast. I love it. Thank you. Well, thanks to great guests like you. And thank th- thank you for coming back and, and sharing all this real estate wisdom with us. Your book, 100 Questions Every First Time Home Buyer Should Ask, is actually, it was an icebreaker in the beginning of my relationship before I got married. I was at my then boyfriend's apartment and he had your book on his shelf. And I felt so cool to say to him, I know Elise Glink. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just a reader and a fan. And I was, I like to think, you know, I was a colleague and a so, sort of friend at the time. It was early on in my career too as a personal finance writer, but I felt so cool. And I also felt like I'm, I'm, I'm dating the right kind of guy. He's doing the right kind of homework. And, uh, and now, you know, we have been homeowners for many years. Between you and I, I think we have about 45 years of homeownership experience. Well, so the book is actually, uh, and I will date myself here, but but I started writing the first edition of this book in 1993, 25 years ago. And it was at the fairly close to the beginning of my career. And I had just bought my first um, home with my husband and we were moving into our house. And that was our second purchase. And I really realized how little I knew because it was pretty easy to find the co-op we bought the first time. And then we decided to buy a single family house. And literally, and I talk about this in the book, we looked at more than 125 homes before we found this old 1880s farmhouse that was literally on its last legs that we ended up totally redoing. And so I've lived there through the whole time that I've had this book published. This is now the fourth edition, as you brightly pointed out. And it's so interesting to have had a chance over a generation to watch real estate and how it's changed, how people react to it has changed. 
and um, and watch the machinations of it and try and guide people through it. So it's been quite a privilege. 125 homes. I, I, you know, I don't think there are that many homes on the market in Brooklyn in my neighborhood. <laughs> it may not be right now. It's a pretty hot market. It's a hot market, but you know, it's a different market, obviously, than when uh, even just from five or 10 years ago. And your book, I understand, really focuses on the millennial homeowner. Are millennials really interested in, in, in purchasing homes as much as Gen X and, and baby boomers? I think they're interested in it, but I think the realities of their lives are catching up with them. So a couple of things have changed structurally for this younger group, particularly the younger group of millennials. So millennials are aged about 22 to 38. It's not a traditional generation. We think of those as being in 20-year chunks. But this 15 years is a really interesting year. And I would call that the part of the millennials that I think are having sort of the more the bigger struggles are the ones who graduated eight years ago, so halfway through this generation, and have spent the last eight years trying to catch up from the Great Recession that they came of age in. And then the younger millennials, which act more like digital natives, or iGen, as we hear them start to be called, because they're even more tech- technologically advanced, they have different perspectives when it comes to home ownership. So when you look at student loan debt, you look at the older millennials and how they've kind of struggled to find their footing with jobs and the lack of growth of income that they've experienced, how this generation has really time shifted major milestones. Used to take, when I was going to school, you had four years to get through college. Now, typically, it's six plus for a student to get through college. They graduate from college and they have you know, twenty, thirty, even thirty-five thousand dollars worth of debt. If they go on to graduate school, that multiplies exponentially. Um, they are delaying the day that they get married by seven years. The day of home ownership. The first time home ownership used to be twenty-six, twenty-five years ago. Today, it's closing in on thirty-four. And so, when you look at um, all of these different major milestones. For this population, you begin to understand why home ownership is delayed. There's just a lot of stuff on their plate. Um, you didn't mention this yet, but I read that you talked about Zillow is getting in on the home selling business. Robots are doing house showings. There are all these new real estate websites that are that are marketing to, I guess, the next generation buyer. But some of things don't change, right? You still need a, to have a, a relatively sizable down payment in, in many cases, unless uh, you qualify for certain who actually can get the 10% or lower um, down payment? Pretty much anybody can as long as your your credit score is high enough. In fact, really? FHA, it was, um, so FHA's uh, acting commissioner, uh, there's a new one that was just sort of named, but this, this happened before. She just went before uh, Congress with the latest report and talked about how more people are using FHA loans, which have very low down payments. Uh, they're also using more down payment homeownership assistance, which is often provided by um, city development block grants, CDBG funds, which are given by the federal government to states to use as they like. And a lot of them make it into down payment or TIF groups for uh, first time home buyers who buy in certain neighborhoods or meet in certain income requirements. And so what you're seeing is people get more savvy about ways to cobble together a much higher amount of a down payment simply because home prices have been skyrocketing. So let's talk about that for a minute because 10 years ago, we were in the, in the 
you know, before the recession really hit, we saw home prices that had just kind of gone up exponentially. And millennials who were just leaving college at the time were saying to themselves, oh, we're going to buy a house. And what ended up happening was they didn't really buy houses. They they found that housing prices were way too expensive thanks to the run up during the you know the aughts. And they also saw that they were graduating with a lot of debt and they were getting jobs that didn't really pay for much. And so they started moving home. And that started this generation of a compression of the number of families that were out there looking for homes. And it really caused in you know in many ways this tremendous slowdown. We saw a lot of people going um, into foreclosure. At the same time, we saw a lot of people not being able to afford homes. And so everything kind of piled onto itself. But now you look at the way that, and I want to get to your point about how many websites there are out there, because I would argue that people are not looking at fewer homes. They're looking at many more homes and they're looking at the wrong kinds of homes. They're looking at homes they can't afford to buy. And while that's an old problem, I think all of the websites out there give it a new spin and people are overwhelmed with the beautiful houses that are there, the, the Kardashian way of life, you might want to call it. And they're looking at stuff they can't possibly afford. So when you start looking at homes you can't afford, you're nothing but disappointed. And so I think technology is conspiring to not really help in a lot of ways. They want to help, but there's some hindrances as well. Do you think it's okay though to have less than a t- like a, you know a ten percent or lower down payment? I feel like in New York we're so accustomed to having twenty percent, twenty five percent, which is difficult to cobble together. But in some ways that protects us in 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 a housing crisis. What are some ways to safely prepare for your first home purchase? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm old school. I just feel like you need a bigger down payment. Yeah, uh, I think down payments are great. Um, the problem that people are having is, you know, the fact that home values are increasing. So if you look at the the latest Case Shiller um, report that came out, it's it's showing that home prices have increased for I don't know what many months in a row. I don't know, maybe we're at the 42nd month in a row or something. And home prices are now running around 16% above, I'm sorry, excuse me, 7, 7 to 16% above their height before the crash. Now, not in Chicago where I live, where we're still like 16% below that. That Which I can't, I can't believe that. But. Well, there's lots of reasons for that. But, but mostly in the top 20 markets, home prices are well above that now. They're above their, their previous highs. And so if you're looking, and you've had inflation, so that's contributed. So if you're looking out in America right now, the average home is like $300,000. Um, new construction is more like three twenty, and the you know an existing home will cost you a little bit under that depending on where you are but in hot markets like San Francisco where you you know the the median home price is 1.2 million right that's like a crazy number and coming up with 20% of that is yeah. just undoable um even in Denver though you know you're seeing just not any homes for sale in the market they're just moving within minutes and so people are doing pocket listings you're not really seeing how fast home price appreciation is again having cash makes it king you king and queen because you're able to move more quickly on getting these homes. But that is making it very tough for millennials who haven't had a lot of years in the workforce, are paying down student loan debt to a great degree. They've been living uh, in their Ubers and out at restaurants and bars, so they're spending a lot of money, and they haven't really refocused on it. 
thinking, well, I'll get around to home ownership someday. But in the meantime, what's happening is they're finding beautiful new places to rent and mm-hmm. those are costing a lot of money. And so I think what we're doing is is our eyes, we're all feasting on all these amazing features and benefits and amenities of both rental homes and home ownership homes. It's making it very tough for people to refocus and do with less while they save up for the big purchase. But one of the questions that you often get, Elise, especially amongst the millennials, is how do I fit home ownership into my lifestyle? Which I, I get that too. I mean, people will write in and say, hey, you know, I have some savings, but I have a lot of things going on. Like you talked about student loans. I have high expenses. My income is not where I'd love it to be, but I, I am cobbling together some savings. I'd like to fit home ownership into my lifestyle. But what are some really important questions we need to answer before we warm up to that? Well, I think that you have to take a hard look at your lifestyle. So I've met so many millennials in working on this book in the last year and a half. And then since I've done it, I've been invited to speak um, to groups of millennials across the country. And I'm amazed literally at how many of them they're like, well, I don't have a car. Great. You're saving money that way. But they're Ubering and spending, you know, a hundred dollars a weekend to go around. It's so easy to Venmo money to people or chase it or whatever it is, you know, version you're using of sending electronic payments. Very hard to keep them in, in, you know, in, in, in sort of under budget or whatever your budget is. And most people, as you know, aren't even doing budgets. So what is that all about? I think people just, it's hard to keep track of your money with everything else. And I think when a massage comes calling or a trip to go see somebody get married, or you just really have to have a vacation, or you're buying gifts for people, or you get sick, or you've got higher healthcare costs at work, you know, just by your co-pays, or maybe it's your insurance piece, you know, this all eats into a budget. And without some planning and and deciding, I'm not spending anything except paying down my student loan debt and saving for retirement and my future home purchase, you're never going to get there. And so these require the deferred gratification that I talk about all through my book, because everybody starts out in the same place. And you have to, unless even if you're making $100,000 a year or more, you might be living in Denver where the cost of living is higher and a one bedroom apartment might be $3,500 a month. So you really have to do what I call, uh, which is the zero balance, right? Your go to zero debt. And I talk about it in the book where take every expense off the table. Start with the number one expense that you can't live without. That's usually your rent. And you put it down. Okay, this is what I'm spending on rent. All right, what's your next thing? Usually it's insurance or food. Um, you may have some other, uh, transportation expenses. All of those have to go down in the must haves. And then once you're done with must haves, then, and only then should you see how much you have left. And that's where you start putting in the few want to haves. And at the top of that list should be saving for your down payment. If buying a house is important to you and it should be. I use that tip so often. You were on the show, uh, one of my first guests on So Money, and you talked about how you and your husband go to, I guess, like you called it, ground zero with your budget. You know, you strip everything away and then you rebuild. And you do this every year, which I think is brilliant because it's very easy to tack on all of these expenses and these automated services. We forget that we're even paying for them because they just become second nature. Like, can you remember how many Ubers you took last month? 
probably not. Um, right. But 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 you're right. They could it could end up being more than a car payment. And you think all the while, well, I don't have a car, so I'm, at least I don't have to pay for that. But it's true. Um, so thanks for reminding us of that. Some people think that, like, let's say someone's renting right now and they're thinking, okay, well, I pay $900 a month in rent. So that means that my mortgage, I should be looking at a mortgage that is roughly the same on a monthly basis. What's What do you make of that logic? Well, the first thing I would say is you've got to think like a lender. Right. So mortgage lenders in the conventional space, and I'm not saying FHA, but in the conventional market, lenders will allow you to spend conventionally up to 36% of your gross monthly income on your total debt. Right. So mortgage taxes, insurance, student loan payments, credit card debt, whatever else it is. And if you're buying a condo versus a, a single family house, you're going to have your monthly assessment or payment on top of that to the condo association that also gets subtracted. And that's in the conventional world. In the unconventional markets or non-conventional markets, um, Fannie Mae and even FHA are allowing you to spend up to 50%, 50% of your gross monthly income on the same sorts of things. So what does that feel like in the real world? Oh my gosh, I don't know how anybody could breathe or sleep at night, right? Because 50% of your gross monthly income after taxes will feel like 65, maybe even 70%, depending on where you live and what taxes look like for your income bracket. On the flip side, you know, 36% can feel closer to 45 to 50%. So imagine you make, you're making $60,000 a year, right? Your gross mm-hmm. monthly income is $5,000. At 36%, it's going to feel like half of that Half of your take-home pay is going to be going off or three-quarters of your take-home pay is going to be going off just to pay mortgage, property, taxes, and insurance. And when you start thinking like a lender and you start looking at what you're spending, you realize that there's a complete imbalance. And so this is where it's really helpful to take everything off the table and start rebuilding. And one of the things that I do in my book is I walk you through all of these different expenses that you can expect once you're a homeowner, which if you've been renting your whole life or living with mom and dad, you don't have any idea what that costs. No. So I walk you through that and so that you can start to imagine what those costs look like and build a budget that actually makes some sense to yourself and to a lender. You talked earlier about how this is a hot market, but then you look at things like interest rates are rising. People aren't really sure how the new tax laws are going to uh, infiltrate the real estate market. And we know that, you know, in some cases, uh, people's mortgage interest won't be as high of a deduction. And the people who may have been last year interested in buying this year are going, I don't know, especially also with the political uh, events that are happening and how that's going to impact the economy. We just don't know. So with all of that, where do you see the hotness and, and how should we kind of look at all of these other factors and, and weigh them into our decision making? There's some question in my mind about whether the reason the market is hot is because sellers aren't selling and there's very low inventory, which there is empirically. Everybody knows the data is showing for a long time now, years, that sellers really aren't selling. And there's a number of reasons for that. Or um, there's lots of people who really want to buy. So what we've seen from millennials in the buy side is that they're now about half or a little bit over half of all first-time home buyers, which is great. And they account for about a third of all buyers. So millennials are buying 
They're a huge block, kind of like the baby boomers were. So this is a huge group of people that are moving into their prime home buying years, which as we discussed, you know, the average age now is nearly 34 for first time home buyers. So you're seeing millennials who are, you know, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, that, that they're now like a few years in, but we're only now in the last, since 2017, seeing them really, you know, be in full force. So in my mind, that argument is we're seeing actually millennials, that first time home buyer age is probably going to get pushed even higher, even later. So maybe 35 or 36. So we're seeing that, um, there's just a, a mismatch between the number of people who want to buy and the number of people who are selling and developers who should be right in the middle of that have been underbuilding for 10 years. So basically for sure since 90, 2009, but even 2008, we have not seen nearly enough new construction units. So what's been going up has been rental units, but for home homes, we should be seeing housing starts of about one and a half million a year. And we're seeing uh, and new homes built over a million, and we're actually seeing new single family homes in about the 600,000 range. So for now 10 years, you've been missing maybe five, 600,000 new units a year that should have been built. So you're missing like 6 million more houses. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just basically, it's a supply demand issue. I mean, I I know I live in a bubble here in New York, here in Brooklyn, if I want to buy a four bedroom at any given moment within like a five mile radius, there's like 25 houses on the market. (laughs) That's not a lot to choose from. And uh, as a result, the prices have pretty much stayed at the same levels as they were uh, two years ago, three years ago, if not higher. That's good if you're selling. You don't have a lot of competition. It is, but then where do you go to live? Where so, do you go to live? And sellers aren't aren't selling for a number of reasons, right? Because they've got, they locked in super low interest rates. I refinanced, um, I have a 15 year at like 3% and we're paying more on it. It's going to be gone pretty soon, our, our mortgage altogether both on our rental properties and on our, our primary property. But I anywhere else I would move, I would pay more and I would I have a higher interest rate if I needed a loan. And so I, I think I'm very much like people who are, you know, now empty nesters. So we're supposed to be, you know, getting ready to move to a smaller place, but we're not. I've got a business I'm running, a new company, Best Money Moves, and I've got employees and it's two blocks from my house. There's nowhere else for me to go. So when you think about people moving and where they need to go, how they need to move, what they are thinking about doing, we're all really retiring later. Baby boomers need to work every year they possibly can to make up for the shortfall and what happened during the recession to them. And so we're still seeing kind of this, the, the resulting waves and it's a deeply affecting the housing market, I think. We have a couple questions from my audience and they have to do with rental properties. Do you like talking about rentals as much as you do about primary residents? I do. In fact, I've I've written some books about it. My book, Buy, Close, Move In, which which I I wrote in 20, it got published in 2010 um, in the depths of the recession, argued that this was going to be the best time maybe in our lifetimes to buy rental property. And it was. Wow. Uh, and then this book, I talk about it as well, because there's a trend out there, a couple of trends that are worth noting for your audience. One is that 
There are a lot of millennials who are thinking about buying rental property before they buy a place to live themselves. So they would rent and then they'd buy something to rent out or multifamily unit, they'd live in one and rent the others. And then the other trend that we're seeing is multi-generational housing, where millennials, their parents, and oftentimes grandparents are buying property together. So what what are the rental questions you have? Oh, and I wonder if Airbnb is attributing any is adding to this uh, this fervor because I think with Airbnb there's now um, you can find short term rentals short term renters for, sorry like for the weekend or for just for the week for your property you know that in some beach locations vacation areas that's a big uh, draw to buying and then uh, renting it out it is it's and not only just Airbnb it's um, VRBO which has become huge and there's a whole home away. Home Away, which now own, I think they own VRBO, but they also own 50 websites around the world that do the, the very same thing. So if you wanted to rent a house in France, you could go there. The um, I think that short-term rental websites have made it a lot more feasible for people to own property. Um, you have to be careful. Cities are not taking to it lightly. You've got the hotel and lodging industry that's lobbying hard against it and putting a lot of pressure in Washington and on state and local governments because they see it as unfair competition. But there was recently, and I want to say it was in the last couple of months, and I could certainly send you a link to this to push out to all of your listeners, but I think it was the Urban Institute that did a study, and it, the high, basically the high concept was um, Airbnb is actually pushing up the price of property. It is making it more valuable for um, investors to own property, whether they're renting it out on the, by the month, by the year, by the week, uh, by the day. I don't think they got into renting it by the hour. I think that's a no. different website. But. <laughs> that, that I think is illegal. <laughs> not not in, uh, where not in Las Vegas perhaps but Maybe everywhere not. yeah. But anyway, that's but they they did show that 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 there is a correlation between being able to do short-term rentals and the higher price of property. I believe it. I see it in some markets here in the uh, the New York area. So the questions are, Elise, uh, for example, Trevor is looking at getting a rental property. What's a good base rate of return? Is, is eking out a $100 net profit a month good enough or should you aim higher? So – you know, this is a question that I think people really do have to understand the mechanics of how property rental works because it's never, if you're after tax making money, that's a pretty good position to be in for your first year. And the reason is because rents will continue to increase and hopefully you've locked in a 30 year fixed rate loan for this property. So that won't increase, but your property taxes will increase. You're going to have some increase of costs and you're going to have to go in and repaint every once in a while and replace appliances and things that, again, you don't think about when you're buying for the first time. But, you know, I do walk everything I walk you through as a home owner for an owner occupy would be very similar for rental. What's different, though, is the tax treatment. And with the new Tax Reform Act, one of the things that may happen is that it may end up being more tax advantageous to own rental property because you're able to write off a lot more of those costs and expenses than you would be able to if you were in an owner-occupied property. Now, I still think you should have an owner-occupied property because I think that's a good thing, but real estate is real estate. And so this may be a way for you to uh, amortize those costs 
and to get a bigger tax break on the other side. But that will depend, of course, on whether this is your primary thing that you do, real estate investing or not. Um, And if you have a good attorney uh, and tax accountant and team, which you should have or not, and, and how that all works. But again, just not knowing anything else, cash flow positive in your first year is generally a good sign. One of our guests on So Money, Paula Pant, is a serial rental property owner. I think she has something like eight properties. She's in her 30s and she has a course on this. So if you guys want to check out another resource, um, she is Paula Pant and she's at, she blogs at affordanything.com. So that's uh, that's good. That's a good reminder. You know, we forget about some of the upkeep that's associated with being a landlord, um, and also, you know, you are in charge of things like plumbing and things going awry. Sometimes you hire a maintenance company as sort of an intermediary to be there for those late night calls, and that takes that that can eat some of your profit. Jonathan asks about whether or not maybe we've already answered this in some ways, but I want to I want to give Jonathan a nod here. He has says Manhattan is oversaturated, and so do you think it's better to buy rental properties over a property to live in? Now here I think is again a millennial who is looking at the market and going maybe I should rent because I can get some really sweet rental deals. The building across the street from mine is offering 4 months free, luxury brand new in Brooklyn. So if anyone's looking to be my neighbor, that's probably a good place to start. He's thinking maybe I should rent and I should look at investing in a rental property for income, but also, you know, that property could appreciate and could be a a way to build wealth. So I love this. Um, I absolutely agree that he should look at rental property investments, but you're going to, you know, Manhattan is a complicated market. So there are a lot of laws governing tenants and landlords, and you've got to, you know, really step up your game because tenants um, know they have a voice and they know they have a place to go to. I I think it's also interesting, though, and this goes back to what we said at the beginning, you know, there's a place across the street that's like a new, brand new luxury um, place to live. And yes, you can get four months free, but if you're paying 7,000 a month for the other months, and then the second year, you're not going to get the four months free. Um, are you overspending on your own side when you want to be saving money to buy the property? Um, one of the things people don't realize when they're buying investment property is you can't just do it with 3% down. You typically have to have between 25 and 35% down. And so uh, commercial property, investment property, it's not an inexpensive upfront cost, especially in a place like Manhattan. So think about that. If you're buying a million-dollar property, that's $350,000 that you basically need to come up with in order to buy an investment property and get qualified. So right. I just want people to think about how those dynamics actually work because if you're out there spending – you know, in a luxury apartment, you know, on one side, but you want to buy this investment property in the other, those two goals may not work. Just a little anecdote. We were interested in looking at some rental investments, property investments in the Brooklyn area, kind of deeper into Brooklyn. There are neighborhoods like Bedford-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights. But the problem is, is that, like you said, you have to invest so much of your own money up front. Not to forget, you have to pay maintenance, you have to pay taxes, and the rental income that you get 
is going to be high, but it's not going to be high enough to really cover that mortgage and the property taxes and the insurance and this and that. It's it's one of those things where I think you'd lose for quite a while money, but all the while the idea is that this property will appreciate that you're getting into this market in 2018 and by 2038, you know, it might have even doubled in value. I, I do believe that. I do believe that there are still parts of Brooklyn and even Manhattan where you could buy today and it would double in price in 10, 15 years. But in the meantime, if this is just a rental investment property for you, you're going to lose. And so that's going to take some, that's going to take a cut out of whatever equity, right, that you're building in that home. You have to do the numbers, Farnoosh, right? I mean, you, you of all people know this. Yeah, I did the numbers and we're not, we're not doing this. <laughs> you're not doing it, right. And, and so for Sam and I, it's interesting, you know, my husband's a real estate attorney, so we get the legal fees for free, which is, you know, no small matter, but, and we should be the perfect people to be landlords. There's this other side of it, which is, do you want to actually deal with the hassles of, of owning property of which there are many. And some people like your, you know, this friend of yours or whoever that was with the eight properties, I've met people who own 40 properties, 50 properties, 60 properties, and they just love it. And, you know, I have clients for my content and consulting business. Um, it's a family owned business. They own 90 buildings. And some of those buildings have, you know, 50 units in them. So they really have made that a, a wildly successful business and they have infrastructure now with people who can help them manage it. That's a very different lifestyle than you own three buildings and you're constantly shuttling between your 12 units, trying to fill vacancies and make sure that the buildings are managed properly and oh, somebody's water pipe burst and oh, this toilet leaked and you know whatever are the, the things that go on. We currently have two rental properties um, in addition to our main house. We used to have others. We got rid of them. And these two are sort of performing okay at the moment. I would get rid of one, but we bought it 12 years ago um, off the plans that were from 15 years ago. And now it's finally getting to a place where it's actually cash flow neutral and we're thrilled and the property prices come back to, we'll probably break even on that one aside from the sweat tears and of agony, just going through it the last 12 years. And then the one we've done the best on is the one that we bought uh, in downtown Chicago, a one bedroom condo in a building across the street from the train station that wasn't very nice. Uh, we bought it 20 years ago, like you said, and it's doubled in value and we have, we're now getting, I think it costs us maybe 800 or a thousand bucks a month and we get over 20, you know, 20 something hundred a month rent for, for it. Wow. So we're making about a thousand bucks a month, but it's been 20 years. And so mm -hmm. it's the easiest one because whoever rents it, rents it for two to three years at a time. And there are tricks of the trade. Like you don't charge the most amount of rent. You charge a little less, so you get a better quality tenant and blah, blah, blah. But these are the things that you learn as you go through it over time. And so, you know, where have we done the best? We've done the best by buying what we could afford, holding on to it, not doing crazy expensive renovations to it, prepaying our mortgage, which is where you're going to always save the most amount, uh, refinancing down when interest rates per permit it. And, and then we put a lot of our other money into the stock market. Um, in index funds. And that was just, you know, so we have some real estate, we've got a lot of other stuff too. And it was a way to build a very big diversified portfolio. And now if we want to move to San Francisco, well, I guess we could. So there you go. Um, well, last question. Sometimes people ask me, should I pay down my mortgage or should I put more money in the stock market? So 
you know, they're paying their mortgage as they should, but then they want to maybe pay an extra payment or two or three, knock down that principal. The other option is to put money in the stock market. At that point, it's a numbers game. You know, what? how much do you anticipate earning in the stock market versus what is the interest rate on that loan? I also feel like it's a psychological question, right? Because sometimes people just want to have no debt. Having a $0 mortgage makes them sleep better at night. What, what, what does your intuition say? So I get to ask this question all the time. The, the answer is partly how old you are, partly what keeps you up at night, partly what your goals are financially for your life. So I would say to everybody that no matter what, you should try to have your mortgage paid off by the time you retire. Your cash flow is going to be different and you're going to want to minimize your expenses. That's an easy way to do it. Uh, but for somebody who's young, right, you know, prepaying your mortgage is a, is versus investing in the stock market is the difference between a guaranteed rate of return and a possible rate of return. So historically, we've seen an 8 to 10% return in the stock market, but there are years where it was like way negative and years where it's been way up. And usually way up is followed by a few years of way negative, as you know. With a, when you pay down your mortgage, you're, you get the guaranteed rate of return. That's the net return if you get, well, pretty much housing deductions are being wiped off. So um, if you've got a 5% mortgage, your rate of return is going to be 5%. Every dollar you prepay in the stock market, you might get 5%, you might get 8%, you might get 10%, you might get 25%. You might also get negative 10%. So Mixing it up has been what I've always chosen to do myself. We've prepaid our mortgage to a reasonable amount. We've also, um, you know, invested and saved heavily in the stock market. And I would say to people that, you know, when you think about how much you should be saving, because I'm sure that's the question you get all the time, um, we never made that much money the first 10 to 15 years of our marriage. We still, no matter what, always saved 20 to 25% of our gross income. And we did that because we wanted to send our kids to whatever college they want debt-free because we wanted to never feel beholden because we knew that bad times would come. We're two self-employed people. And so we knew we couldn't really count on a job. And we knew that there would be times where we would have downtimes in our businesses and we would need money to get by. And so even when you don't make that much money, if you prioritize saving and buying a house like we did, um, you can have it all. It's just about not having the stuff like the material things or doing without that extra trip or not going out to dinner in exchange for having some really big assets in your life. And that's the bargain that we made. That's the bargain I encourage in my book. Um, and it's uh, a choice that I think everybody has to make for themselves. Elise Glink, thank you so much for coming on again. Please come back. Uh, I mean, these questions will never stop. And I think that's a good thing. We're, we're constantly curious and interested in the potential of becoming a homeowner. I like. I agree. While we, we may not be into as many things as our parents were. We do want experiences and being a homeowner can be a really great experience. It has been for me. I know it has been for you and countless others. Your book is called 100 Questions Every First Time Homebuyer Should Ask. It's a thick one, but it's a, it's worth it. And it's in its fourth edition. 
uh, back already for its second printing. It's in 400,000 hands already. So if you don't have it, please check it out. And uh, thinklink.com is your site. And your other company, which we've talked about on the show in the past, bestmoneymoves.com. You're you're like a nonstop energizer bunny. <laughs> well, you know, now that I am an empty nester, you see, you've got a few years to go till you experience this. You find that you have lots of extra time in your day. So I'm just filling it with things that I hope will help people. Thank you so much, Elise. And thank you to all for sending in your questions. And I hope your weekend is so money. <laughs> <laughs> 